0: You're listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast, a podcast devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find out more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. This helps increase the visibility of the show in iTunes. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click on Ratings and Reviews. You can email feedback to aaron at paleorunner.org. If you downloaded this through iTunes and are listening on an Apple device, you can follow along with links and chapters. Today's guest is Matt Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening. Matt Fitzgerald is a prolific endurance sports journalist and author of many books on running, triathlon, fitness, nutrition, and weight loss. Matt is also a competitor himself and has run numerous numerous marathons and shorter distances and an Ironman triathlon. Matt, thanks so much for being part of the show. It's great to have you on.
1: Great to be with you, Aaron.
0: So Matt, uh, it I can tell from reading your books that... You know, you're really passionate about the sport of running and endurance sports, and it really shows in your running. You, your books are very interest, interesting to read. How did you how did you become interested in running?
1: Uh, I became interested in running through my, my dad, actually. Um, he was part of the, the first big running boom in the late 70s and early 80s. He ran his first marathon in 1983. Uh, it was the Boston Marathon. Um, of course, you might ask, how could he, how could Boston be his first marathon since you have to qualify for that? Well, back in those days, actually more than half the people who ran Boston every year were bandits. It was, it was very, very different race. So my dad ran it, uh, as a bandit at the back with thousands of others. Um, and our whole family, I have two brothers and we all, um, packed up a car and went down to watch him. So we just, you know, navigated our way to, around to various points of the course and then, uh, our last viewing spot was, um, somewhere between a mile, and a mile and a half, uh, from the finish line. And my two brothers and I actually, um, ran the lat- that last stretch of the of the race with him and crossed the finish line with him. Um, and it was just, as you, as you might be able to imagine, just a, a magical experience. And, uh, the very next day I announced at the breakfast table that I, I was going to start running too. And, uh. I made good on that. So I was uh, 11 years old, about to turn 12
0: at at the time, and I got hooked. Nice, nice. So when did you end up running your first marathon then?
1: Well, it it took a while to get around to it. You know, I I really got into the running um, in middle school and high school. Um, But then uh, at the end of high school, I I actually burned out on it and stopped, Um, just quit the sport cold turkey. Um, You know, I had I had intended to run in college. Had largely picked my college because of its running program, but then ended up just not running there, um, and only got back into it um, in my mid mid twenties. Um, after I, I just happened to get a job with an endurance sports magazine. Um, at the time, I was kind of fat, out of shape, over 200 pounds, but being in that environment kind of, uh, it reignited the, the old flame and I, you know, slowly worked my way back into shape and then eventually ran my first marathon. Um, I would have been 28.
0: Okay. Um, you, you mentioned that you were over 200 pounds Uh, from looking at your picture online. I I could never imagine that. How tall are you?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm six one my way. Uh, I'm, I'm naturally a skinny guy when, when I first, Reached my adult height in high school. I weighed 138 pounds at six one. So I was pretty much, <laughs> I was pretty much the skinniest guy I knew. But, um, you know, both my parents have to work hard to to stay uh, slim. So I guess you know there was something in the genes. And when I when I stopped running into high school, I, I gained weight very quickly. It wasn't all fat. I, I got into weightlifting and, and put on a lot of muscle. Okay. Too. I, I, I tell people I sort of look like one of those 1980s pro wrestlers with, with big muscles and a big gut.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about today is your books uh, that involve this idea of brain training. How did you come up with this idea, and what exactly is it?
1: Yeah, there's a family connection there as well. Uh, my, my older brother, uh, Josh, um, he, uh, after graduating from college, um, entered a Ph.D program in cognitive neuroscience um or computational neuroscience actually so he was studying the brain and uh when we, we would catch up on the phone every now and then he would tell me about all the stuff he was learning and i thought it was just really fascinating i mean the you know the human brain is just kind of this one of these last frontiers of science and it's you know it's about who we are um so i think anyone would kind of have an intrinsic interest in it and he would, you know, he was very good at sort of dumbing things down so I could understand them, and he recommended, you know, popular science books about the brain to to read, and and so, you know, I I I did that, and uh, I just thought it was interesting, but didn't think it was anything I would ever really apply, um, except that, you know, as a, as I got into my career as a uh, an endurance journalist, I started to notice that um, for the first time, exercise scientists were also playing uh, paying attention to the brain. Um, you know, new new brain imaging techniques and stuff had come along that made it possible to account for the brain's role in exercise performance. So then I thought, well, well, this is cool because, um, you know, you've got these scientists working on that stuff, but it it isn't really penetrating to, you know, the actual running market yet. So I thought, you know, since I have a bit of a head start on this, I might be able to be a bridge between, you know, the brain science and the practical applications for Runners and other endurance athletes. So I started just to just spend a lot of time, you know, thinking through, you know, the stuff that we're learning about the brain and exercise, is it just interesting or does it actually have, does it make a difference? You know, should, should we tweak how we approach the sport? And, you know, I decided, you know, this stuff wasn't going to call for a wholesale, you know, uh, revision of, of of training methods and such, but that it did call for uh, kind of a new perspective um, on on how athletes approach uh, training and and even you know the psychology um of the sport so uh you know that that started uh maybe around two thousand one two thousand two for me and i i've been i've been you
0: know
1: i've been at it ever since
0: you mentioned that you started learning more about the role that the brain is is playing in exercise. Uh, and fatigue and how is that different from traditional methods that that were written about prior to your book
1: yeah so you know the, the idea and you know we should have known this all along is that you know, your brain is really responsible for absolutely everything that happens you know when when you're running you know it initiates muscle contractions um you know the very idea to run comes from your brain um you know the the control of um the fuel sources that your muscles use uh that, regulated by the brain. You know, it's not it's not just automatically happening. Your brain decides even your respiration rate, the way you're you're uh, breathing is synchronized with your foot strikes. That is is controlled by the brain. So lots of unconscious stuff, but also, you know, you get into the psychological elements, the perception of effort, regulation of pace, you know, which is largely done by feel, resisting fin- fatigue, and even your brain appears to enforce fatigue when you when you get tired. Uh, uh, you know, Tim Noakes, the uh, the brain the exercise scientist at University of Cape Town South Africa who has a lot of interest in the brain, he says the feeling of fatigue is fatigue, so you name it anything that's going on when you're running, your brain is governing it uh, somehow and even we now know that the brain adapts to uh, regular exercise training both faster and more profoundly than any other organ of the body so you know you you can imagine that you know given all that stuff that we've learned um, it does call for, for you know, well, it's just, it's just very different from the old models, which really, you know, scientists have a way of, of just ignoring anything they can't measure. And because, you know, from the time exercise science was born as a discipline, you know, around the, turn of the 19th to the 20th century up until you know maybe the 1990s they, they couldn't measure the brains so they just ignored it so they didn't include it in any of their models of, of exercise performance you know, we, we now know that you know at, at the point of exhaustion during endurance exercise you know when you bonk um, there is reserve physical capacity in the body when that happens you know you bonk because simply you cannot take the pain anymore it's a it's a voluntary um thing well that's that's a new you know and profound insight that we didn't have before the old models all uh assume that there was some kind of catastrophic breakdown purely physical breakdown from the neck down somewhere in the body and that 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 caused fatigue so those are the kinds of differences uh that we're talking about in the models which which have practical ramifications a,
0: a lot of uh i know i just read uh rich Rowe's latest book and he talks about going in and getting his uh, physiology tested out like lactate threshold and heart rate and and things like that so that he can set up all his training paces. Are those things now because because of this brain centered uh, approach to fatigue, are those things irrelevant or are those still important?
1: still still very very important I mean the, the thing to understand is that fatigue is always mediated through conscious perception. So, you know, if you're running in a marathon and you get to mile 22 and you just hit the wall and you slow down and it feels inexorable that it feels like I'm still trying to run as fast as I was before, but I just can't. Okay, well, that's actually not true you, you know you, you have the capacity to keep running at the pace you were before you just can't take the pain and so you're you're slowing down um that doesn't mean that our physical capabilities are actually unlimited that we're all Superman, but we just you know because we because we encounter our mental limits before we ever reach our ultimate physical limits that if only we could get these mental limits out of the way, you know, every one of us could run a, you know, a two hour marathon or whatever that that's not the case at all, because your perception of effort and, you know, suffering and fatigue and all that stuff is closely linked to your physical capacities. So when you train to get, you know, to increase your your physical capacities well that modifies the relationship between those capacities and your perception of effort so suddenly you know after 12 weeks of training you know whereas say at the start of that process an 8 minute mile felt moderately hard well after 12 weeks an eight minute mile feels much easier mm-hmm. because you know the because of that modified relationship between your body's physical capacities. so it's still largely you know it's largely about you really want to focus on on you know your muscles and your oxygen carrying capacity and all this stuff because you know it's gonna it's going to allow you to run faster and farther and before you reach the point where you can't take the pain anymore
0: what is what's been your reception from uh coaches and athletes as far as taking this into account this idea that the brain has a, a governor on it and it's going to let you run say not 90 percent of your max or or your of your reserve and and it's not going to let you hit that hundred percent because at that hundred percent you're going to break down so it's going to set a lower limit is that's kind of the idea right
1: yeah that- that is the way um, Tim Noakes' central governor model. That's sort of the language of of his model. Okay. There's um there, there are sort of other ways of framing it. Uh, there's another researcher out, out there named Samuela Marcora, who I talk more about in in the Mind Body Running book. He he focuses less on the that unconscious governor and and more on uh, what I've been em- emphasizing in this interview, which is conscious perceptions for mm. him. It's really the limits are conscious and psychological versus some kind of homunculus or, you know, little man inside your brain who's just saying, you know, stop there. Don't go anywhere. So there are slightly different ways of, of looking at it. But, yeah, the, that's the basic idea that um, you, we never actually encounter our true physical limits in endurance exercise, that we we always stop short of that due to some kind of uh, brain or psychological barrier that we hit first um mm. yeah so to, to answer your question um it's actually been extremely gratifying that you know uh coaches whom i whom i respect and, and high level runners have been very very recept- receptive to to this concept because it really the thing i hear over and over again is that especially people who read the mind body running book that they'll, they'll tell me i don't always felt that way, but I just never had the words to articulate it. Um, and, and, and so there's not a lot of resistance. I mean, uh, people would, people, you know, endurance athletes like to think of themselves as being mentally tough and, and they don't necessarily like the idea that they quit, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that they they may say, well, other people may slow down because they can't take the pain, but I actually go to my true physical limits, you know? So there's some pushback against that. Unfortunately, the experiments that prove <laughs> that it's really more of a mental thing than, than a physical one are incontrovertible. I mean, th- this is just an established fact. Um, but in terms of just all the rest of it, um, it people have been very receptive uh, to these ideas.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know uh, Dathan Ritzenheim wrote the foreword to your book, Run, and that was really interesting to see his perspective on uh, how he used some of the ideas of, in your book towards his training you you were talking about that there is some evidence to show that this theory or this idea that that the brain is really important is is really the correct way of looking at it do you have any studies or things that you could share with me or the audience of, of what that evidence is
1: sure um you know they're, 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 they're really all over the place um, uh, there, there are lots of different ways to come at this um uh, uh, kind of one very simple way to 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 provide evidence and in support of this this notion is to look at the effects of certain drugs, um, uh, that influence endurance performance. For example, c- caffeine is known to be performance enhancing, mm-hmm. but caffeine acts on the brain. All it does is it reduces uh, perception of effort. It doesn't do anything to help your muscles. It doesn't do anything to help, um, uh, your body metabolize fuels better or, Um, To improve your VO2 max, it simply activates uh, parts of your brain that are involved with with perceptive effort so that your normal pace simply feels a bit easier. And, And so when you take caffeine and it enhances your performance, the only reason it's doing that is because the exercise feels easier. Well, that wouldn't be possible if you were already able to exercise to your ultimate physical limit. So, and there are also other drugs that do the opposite. They, they act on the brain. They don't act on anything but the brain, and yet they lower endurance performance. So that's, that's one way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify those things under the, the incontrovertible proof category. Um, Those studies um, are more like uh, the research that's being done by the guy I mentioned earlier, Mark Marcora. He he did a really interesting study involving rugby players um, where he had them ride on stationary bikes, and it was a three-part test. Initially, he had them uh, pedal as hard as they possibly could for just five seconds. Then right after that, they had to sustain a fixed high but submaximal pedaling intensity uh, as long as they could. So he just said, uh, you know, you have to sustain this wattage as long as you possibly can and only quit when you simply cannot turn the pedal ranks one more time at that wattage. And then there was a, a secret third part of the test that they didn't know about that he, he launched on them as soon as they quit that second part. You know, in total exhaustion, he he forced them to immediately pedal as hard as they could for five seconds once again. So, what he was really interested in looking at was the difference in power output in those two five-second sprints. Um, And the middle part, on average, these guys were able to continue pedaling for somewhere between ten to fifteen minutes. So, you could think of it as like a like a three k to five k like fun race effort type of thing. So, in theory, if 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 these people were truly uh, quitting quitting the second part of that test because they were physically exhausted and they had they had reached some kind of absolute physical limit then whatever wattage they had been sustaining in that second part of the t- test would be their their limit for that second five second sprint they couldn't and it was a, it was an average of 242 watts so to, to back up when they when they pedal all out for five seconds when they were completely fresh, they were able to put out more than a 1,000 watts, which is huge, but these guys were rugby players, so you would expect that. Mm. In the second part, when they had to sustain a high sub-maxible intensity, the average was 242 watts. And and on average, they quit in complete exhaustion, so they believed after 10 or 15 minutes at that level. And then immediately afterwards, again, they were forced to repeat the that, that five-second sprint well, if they were truly physically exhausted at 242 watts, then in that second 5-second sprint that they had to do immediately afterwards, they couldn't have possibly have exceeded 242 watts, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cuz they had been, they have been told to pedal as long as they possibly could at 242. If they quit, that means they can't sustain 242. But, he, you know, the uh, Samwell Marcora said, you're not done yet. Sprint again for five seconds right now as hard as you can. On average, they were able to put out 731 watts <laughs> in that second five-second sprint, supposedly when they were completely physically exhausted. And, you know, Marcora said the whole reason they did it is because for psychological reasons. They had quit the second part of the test simply because the pain just wasn't worth it to them anymore. They weren't going to get anything great out of this. These guys were mentally tough you know athletes but everyone's got their limits mm. so they quit at some point they're just you know like you know this pain's getting to be too much but then when they were required to sprint again they thought well it's only gonna be five seconds <laughs> and they were they weren't able to match their original five second sprint hour so obviously there was some peripheral fatigue as the scientists call it some some fatigue that's that really was not just in the brain but 731 is three times as much as 242. So clearly, they had a lot left in the tank when they, when they believed that they were truly exhausted. So if you know, you, you've had people who are are wedded to the old model who said, "Well, you know, because they didn't start the second five second sprint immediately after they quit in exhaustion. I think there was like a two to three second gap. You know, because he had to spring it on them, he had to surprise them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the naysayer oh, well, they had enough time to recover in those two to three seconds gap.'" Well, you know, that's a bunch of baloney, you know, they <laughs> you know, and plus, you know, there's a lot of other studies that come at it uh, from different angles. So research like that is the kind of stuff that really, um, you know, bolsters the the, uh, the case.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of people kind of, I think they intuitively know that the mind does have a pretty big effect on their performance. I think you mentioned a story your, about yourself where you were running a 5K and, it, and I think you were about to break 16 minutes. And you saw you saw the clock and that kind of made you you thought you were exhausted. But once you saw the clock, it spurted you on to uh, try to try harder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That whole that whole end spurt phenomenon is um, that that's another type of uh, evidence that that reserve capacity is is always there. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, you know, and and there's there have been there have been lab tests to prove as well that um, that. If if required to, uh, athletes can always pick up the pace within sight of the finish, even when they've been slowing down, presumably because they couldn't help it, you know, before then. Uh-huh. Um, and and that's something that you know any runner who's done a few races knows from experience that no matter how hard you feel that you've driven yourself, you know, through most of the race, once you get close to the finish you find that there's more there it's like wow i could have i could have picked up at any point actually (laughs) Um, And that was a particularly interesting case because i i had thought that that race was was really heading south on me i had started too fast and i was slowing down i saw my mile splits um and then when i saw chance saw that i had a chance at pr i was able to you know find all kinds of wherewithal that i didn't think had been
0: there before well, that's a, that's a pretty fast time for a 5k. What was that your PR?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I've never, never done better than that one. It was the, uh, yeah, 1556. And yeah, that was the, that was the end of an 80 mile week in marathon training. I remember it was like 32 degrees. And this is in San Diego. I ran it in tights and gloves and everything. And it was just, it, I really was not expecting, but sometimes you just have those days. You know, I, I just, I just felt really good and, uh, and had a good race. And I kind of assumed that I would be able to improve on that later in better circumstances, but
0: it never happened. <laughs> now, uh, you talk a lot about, um, neuromuscular recruitment and how the brain recruits muscles in the body to help propel you forward faster. And you even prescribe some jumping exercises and and things like that. can you tell tell the audience a little bit about what those sorts of exercises are doing and how they might help us in our running yeah, so you know. When you're running, you can think of
1: running as just this ongoing conversation between your brain and your muscles, and it's a two-way conversation. Your your brain drives your muscles, you know, through, you know, a network of nerves that connect the brain to the muscles, but your brain also receives feedback from from the muscles through the, you know, the very same uh, network of, of nerves. So there are lots of different ways that you can manipulate that conversation in order to Improve as a runner, um, and uh, plyometrics exercises or, or jumping tr- types of ases are are one of those ways. So running is really just a controlled form of jumping. So you know, lots of training methods just consist of uh, isolating one particular dimension of your sport. In this case, running, and then sort of um, emphasizing it or exaggerating it, and then sort of when we plug that back into the, the, the Complete activity, you benefit. Uh, plyometrics specifically improves running. It doesn't. You, you might think that it would actually make you more powerful, and mm-hmm. it it can, but that's not how that that would be more beneficial to a sprinter. That's not how it improves distance running performance. It actually plyometrics improves distance running performance by by improving running economy. Um, and and how it does that is that every time your foot lands on the ground, you. Your your um, leg functions like a spring, and if it either be kind of a looser spring or a stiffer spring. Um, and if it's loose, you're going to have more give in in the joints and in the uh, the network of connective tissue that runs throughout the, the muscles in your legs. And if there's more give, if, if that spring is looser, you'll actually lose more energy because you, when you land, your your leg will absorb energy from the ground, and it can actually just like a spring propel some of that energy right back into the ground and it's just like it's like free energy for moving forward so if you're able to kind of stiffen up that spring action um you can capture and reuse more more free energy from from the ground and plyometrics works in that way it actually y- y- stiffness has kind of negative connotations when you use the l- l- word colloquially but in the in physics which is what we're really talking about you know the physics of springs stiffening up uh your leg is actually you know beneficial because it gives you free energy and that's that is how uh plyometrics
0: is helpful to runners. Okay. Interesting. Now you talked there about the stiffness of the spring. Why is it that so many runners spend a lot of time stretching if we really want our muscles to be you know kind of springy and stiff does stretching uh play any role in and uh performance improvement?
1: Well, it it could um but it it, it- you would be going after something completely different. Yeah. So conceivably uh spending a lot of time stretching could uh make your legs functionally less stiff, you know, when you're talking about, you know, that that role in running of, of capturing energy from the ground. So yeah, that, that could be problematic. Um the, the proper use for for stretching and where it can actually be beneficial is if um you have particular muscles or tendons in your body that are just, uh, tighter too tight to function normally. And that, that can happen. So there, there are some common overuse injuries in runners that are contributed to by, um, just excessive tightness. Um, and and so if, if you're trying to use stretching in a targeted way to undo some of those imbalances, um, and then it can actually, uh, your performance but you don't want to just you know that, that idea that oh if i just generally become more flexible through uh, you know just lots of stretching that that will help me no that's not that's not the case at all it's it's more but you have to think of it as a like a sort of a physical therapy type of use for stretching where it's it's very targeted and just trying to allow you to have really a normal range of motion in all of the you know the relevant joints
0: you know one of the things that uh as I was reading your books, you mentioned is really important is total volume of training. And at first, when I when I was starting out your books, I thought, okay, this is kind of a way to hack into my brain and get more from less training. But then later on, you say actually, you know, it it's still really important to get in some volume in there. How does how does that uh, relate to this this idea of the brain and and training and and you and still keeping your volume up? How is that important to try to get in the most running you can? Um, well, well, not overdoing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we know just from uh, the last fifty years of, of um, you know collective trial and error in in run training by you know the the best runners all over the world, we know that a high volume approach is the most effective way to train. It's just simply running more. Is the simplest and most effective way to run better so we didn't need any brain scientists to come around and tell us tell us you know <laughs> in fact if they had told us otherwise we would have just said shut up you know we don't care because we know we know from where it really matters in the real world that you know th- th- there's a reason all of uh, all elite runners run 100 miles a week or more mm-hmm. but you know it turns out that of course what, what scientists who study the role of the brain in exercise performance are learning is that there is, in fact, a, a brain training rationale for high volume. And it comes back to that idea that whenever you're running, there's a conversation going on between your brain and your muscles. And what happens is the, the longer that conversation goes on, the more, the more shortcuts and efficiencies your brain is able to find in terms of how it fires your muscles um, it's, it's not that different from juggling, just, you know, how does a juggler become better at juggling? He just juggles more, you know what I mean? He just, (laughs) you you don't you don't necessarily consciously modify your technique or anything. You just keep doing it and sort of, and you let this kind of unconscious process happen. You're just, you're, you're allowing your brain and your muscles to talk back and forth, back and forth, and you get, you get better at juggling. And the same thing happens New techniques for um, kind of measuring how how hard your brain has to work to make your body do what you want it to do when you run. And uh, what this research has shown is that beginners, people who just, they don't run, but they're, you know, for the sake of an experiment, they're slapped on a treadmill and asked to run. Their brains have to work really hard because... They're, they're not used to the activity. So it's almost like when you get your driver's license and you drive a car for the first time, you know, you're exhausted just after 10 miles to get to your friend's house because you haven't done it before and, and you're kind of white-knuckling it the whole time. You're just, your brain is just hyper-aware of every little move you're doing behind the wheel, and it's the same thing for beginning runners, Um, And it's a little different. That's a little different from running economy or how much oxygen you have to use. It's really a brain thing. Um, Whereas experienced runners who've been running for a while, their brains are much, much quieter when they're running at, at the same pace because they've just done it so many times that their their brain can just be sort of on autopilot just like i know how to do this and so as a result you know because because fatigue really does originate in the brain um an experienced runner who's just got all those miles in in his body he's just farther away from the point of of fatigue because his brain is quieter and this applies not just to running but to any sport um i think in it's in the brain training book i mentioned research involving golfers which shows that when when golfers are putting you know trying to just you know stroke the the ball in, into the hole, those who have the least activity in their brains are the most accurate putters and and what that indicates is that they're they're more experienced they've practiced putting more times so that they're not uh they can almost do it in, in their sleep and so that that to bring it full circle that's why uh, high volume of running is uh, it is the most effective approach to training because you're accelerating that whole process. You're just, you're giving, you're giving your brain and your muscles more time together to work things out.
0: How have you been able to personally find a balance between not doing quite enough to get your full potential and overtraining? Because you do talk about overtraining in the book and you say, you know, that's, can that really doesn't have much of an advantage. How have you been able to do that?
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, obviously, um, volume comes with risk, especially in in, in running. Um, you know, it's interesting in sports like cycling and swimming, you will see recreationally competitive athletes putting in volumes that are, are much closer to what the elites do. Um, whereas running, uh, there's, there's more of an injury risk that comes with increasing volume. And yeah, overtraining can be a problem too. But most runners are likely to get hurt before they actually become overtrained in either, in either case, you know, the, the advantages that come with, come with running more, they, they also come with a risk. So, you know, you, you have to be careful in, in how you approach, um, um, the question of volume. Um, and in my case, um, I'm a very, very injury prone runner. Um, and I, I almost, if I just think about getting injured, I'll get injured. (laughs) So I have to be extremely careful, and sometimes it almost doesn't matter what I do. You know, I've had in every overuse injury you can name, most of them more than once. Uh, so, you know, one thing that has helped is just patience. You know, learning to take my time. Um, you know, I set my marathon and half marathon PRs when I was thirty-seven, and the reason I did it at that late age, even though I started running when I was eleven, was that. I was, I was running a lot more training a lot more at that age because I I just couldn't do it before I I had to take my time and slowly increase the amount of running. I was, I did, you know, with many steps back along the way. Um, so that sort of patient, very gradual incremental increase because your body does get more durable. Even some elites talk about this. I remember Meb Kafleski telling me that, you know, When he, early in his career, when he tried to put in 120, 130 mile weeks, he just couldn't do it. You know, he would, he would get injured. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, you know, so he kind of stepped back to 100 and 110, but a few years down the road, his body had just become more durable and resilient. And he was able to put in those 120, 130 mile weeks. So that's one thing. Another thing you can do is uh, cross train. You know, I, I do a ton of cross training. It helps that I'm a triathlete as well. So you know, I want to swim and, and bike anyway. Um, you know, cross training is, you know, an hour on the bike for a runner is not the same as an hour running because your, your brain and muscles aren't having exactly the same conversation, but cross training can still be very beneficial. I mean, an hour on the bike is still a lot better for a runner than an hour on the couch <laughs> uh, because you're, you're, you're still able to work on some of those constraints, um, you know, that limit how uh, how fast and how far you're able to run uh, before before you bonk. So I do a lot of cross training as well, and that that can be a, a terrific for, solution for for runners who are serious enough to to want to put in the time to be the best they can be, but can't necessarily do it all with running the way a lot of the elites can.
0: Okay, so you know, um, sometimes when you start adding more volume. You start to experience diminishing returns. You know, you, you're putting in a lot more time, but your times might only get a few seconds faster or something like that. What kind of improvements did you see when you started upping your volume at 37? And and what were your PRs in the half marathon and marathon?
1: Well, yeah, there's there's definitely there is a law of diminishing returns, um, and it it starts at a fairly low level. So, you know, if you go from running zero miles a week to 10. Miles a week, you're just going to improve a, a ton. But if you go from 10 to 20, you're also going to improve a ton, but not quite as much as you did from those first 10 miles and, and on you go, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the diminishing returns kick in right away, but that doesn't mean it's not worth it. You know, you're still, you're still going to get a lot of improvement from going from say 40 miles a week to 50. You know, you may have to be, you know, a professional runner who's making his or her living off of running to decide that it's worth it to go from 110 to 120 Mm because you're only going to get a a tiny little uh, bit of improvement. But, you know, the difference between winning and losing. So it's worth it. Um, So just because returns are diminishing doesn't mean it's not worth it. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there is sort of a kind of breakthrough phenomenon that will occur. And I, I kinda had that experience myself and especially in the longer distance races where where the wheels can come off, you know, you know, especially if you take the marathon where, you know, if if you have circles that are maybe sensible based on your PRs at shorter distances, well you you can fail to achieve those predicted times, those goals in the marathon by many minutes just you know if you can't hold your goal pace the whole way, you know, you're just you're just gonna fall apart. You know, you're just gonna be hemorrhaging time (laughs) in the last few minutes. And that's that's always what happened to me. Um, you know, I I just had you know just one disastrous meltdown on the marathon after another because I was insistent you know all the all the you know race prediction formulas said that I could achieve a certain time so you know damn it I was going to that's what I was going to go for um and if I couldn't do it I would fall short you know sometimes by 10-15 minutes you know because I would just be practically walking to the finish so Mm. that year when I was 37 I was finally I, I was able to stay healthy kind of build on all, you know, the incremental progress I'd made up to that point, I got up to running some 80, 85 mile weeks. Um, and you know, even did things like back to back 20 miles or so 20 miles on Saturday, 20 miles on Sunday. Cause I, I really was looking for a, a breakthrough. Um, and I, I ran a half marathon. I didn't improve that a lot. Cause that's still in that level where you could, you're not going to probably, you know, just completely fall apart in the last mile. But I, you know, still I was 37 and I set a PR by 20 seconds or something mm-hmm. in that race. It was in the low 113s. One, one uh-huh. um, but in the marathon, I had an, a really interesting experience where uh, I got about six or seven miles. And my goal was to run 239. I got about six, so up 605 per mile. So that I ran that pace for the first 10K or so. But then I discovered that the course just was not as well suited to running fast as i thought it was i just i already wasn't comfortable at that pace so i I dialed it back by about 10 seconds per mile and my thought was okay here we go again you know because every time that had happened before it was a down it was just the beginning of a downward spiral So (laughs) i thought no it's gonna be the same thing all over again but lo and behold you know 15 miles later i was still running the same pace i hadn't slowed down anymore and i just felt this I, i remember it very distinctly i just felt like this deep inner strength in my body that had never been there before and I knew it was from just all those miles I had lost like I didn't feel good but it it almost didn't even matter you know just (laughs) every mile was a grind but each one was really no worse than than the mile before uh so I ended up just you know kind of holding that kind of 612 pace to the finish and I think uh I was 241 was my finish time. So I didn't quite achieve my goal. Um, but it it was clear the lesson from that was that, you know, mileage matters. That was a a pretty powerful lesson for me personally.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. It's, that sounds like an amazing experience. And that's one of the things I really like about running is these psychological sort of breakthroughs that happen to a lot of us on, especially the longer distance runs, at least for me, It, it, it kind of changes just your outlook towards life and, and what you think you can accomplish and how you can push through things.
1: I, t- I totally agree.
0: An- another topic I'd like to get into, if in the last few minutes here, is uh, this paleo-style diet. This seems to be kind of a, a, a craze that's taken off lately, and it's something that I tried out. and And I had always had issues with stomach with my stomach on longer runs, especially. And I've I've talked to other runners, and they, you know, it's kind of a common experience. But since I've gone on this paleo Diet for about the last year. I haven't had any of that, and I know you're a nutritionist. What do you what do you make of this diet and how it's taken off? And do you have any thoughts on it?
1: Yes, I guess you know my my take on the paleo diet is that if if you do it, you know it's it's a very it can be a very healthy way to eat, and that's you know that's whether you're an athlete or, or, or or non athlete. And doing it right is yeah, you know, maintaining adequate variety in your diet, main, maintaining very high quality standards for, for the foods you do eat, and especially um, being careful with meat. You know, you can't just uh, you can't just overdo the bacon or whatever. You know, like if you're, if you're going to go paleo, I'd recommend that you probably emphasize you know seafood over meat generally, and then you know get uh, you know get your grass fed beef. Uh, versus you know a mcdonald's patty <laughs> that type of thing so with those cautions um i think it can be a, a, a perfectly healthy way to eat um and and for for athletes for runners as well it can be you know a good performance diet in that case you, you want to be in addition to the other concerns you, you want to pay attention to your carbohydrate intake and, and make sure um that that it's adequate so i guess you know I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't eat that way myself, and it's not. Um, it's not a diet that I advocate as being better than, than other alternatives. Um, but it's just. It's. It's one of the options. You know, it, it seems like, especially you look at the anecdotal evidence, like yours. You know, you know, a lot of people seem to be having good results when they make that that switch. So it's um it's not for everyone, but it it seems to be a a, a viable option for many.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any thoughts about this idea that it's a diet that we're more supposedly more biologically adapted to not eating grains. Do you think that there's any truth to that, or is that just uh, part of the fad?
1: Well, you know, to, to be honest, I, I I don't I don't see a lot of. Um, a lot of value in sort of the theoretical artifice that the diet is is built on, and that's actually the the case for most diets. You know, I I, I think a vegan diet is can be perfectly healthy, and, and it can be a good performance diet but I don't, I don't buy theory, you know, behind it. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, no, I think, you know, the, 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 quote unquote paleo diet as it's practiced by most people now is, is only on the, 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 the most superficial level at most, mm-hmm. more like our ancestors than, than the way anyone else is eating. I mean, sure. I mean, you know, okay. Soda pop and stuff like that, but you Know all of the food, and, and this is pretty well accepted even by a lot of the, the smarter paleo uh eaters I know. All of the food that we eat today simply didn't exist 20 years ago. I mean, you know, like the, the meat we eat is all you know just you know domesticated livestock and all that stuff. The vegetables have been you know just you know we we've, we've uh, cultivated them and and kind of to emphasize the qualities we like. I mean, if they're if we could go back time and find you know a paleo, paleolithic human and give him a choice between his diet and a modern one you know he, he would jump all over <laughs> a modern diet. yeah because
0: you,
1: know, you know we solved every problem you know that's why we did it that's why we changed our, our food is because we we saw problems that we wanted to to solve so anyway to to get back to it i you know i don't I don't see a lot of legitimacy in, in, in the, in the theory. And I really don't like people saying it's the one true way for everyone. Right. Uh, that's on my nerves, but, um, but in terms of just on the level of, of practice, um, you know, I, it, it seems, it seems fine precisely because human beings are able to adapt to all kinds of different diets. I mean, that's the mainstream nutrition science, uh, opinion is that there is no perfect diet for people. You know, there, there's a lot of flexibility. It's certainly not a case of anything goes at all, but, um, you know, you you could have very kind of diverse ways of eating and, and thrive on any any one of them.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I had Tim Noakes on the show a few weeks ago and he's gone on, this sort of semi-paleo style diet that includes like 60 to 70% fat saturated. I don't know if it's all saturated, but a very high percentage of his diet is fat. And he says that it's the only way that he's ever eaten where he doesn't feel hungry is by Eating things like whole milk, cream, butter, and sa- but then some salmon and grass-fed meats. And is there is there any evidence from what you've seen as a nutritionist that certain diets have more uh, ability to satiate than others?
1: Oh yeah, I mean that that's certainly the case. That um, yes, so, <laughs> I mean yeah, I mean I'm I, I don't want to be too circumspect about about what what tim told you but i would suggest that if he went on an all broccoli diet that 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 would fill him up (laughs) as well (laughs) you know because you know you you know calorie for calorie if you it's pretty hard to eat two thousand calories of broccoli you you know so you're you're going to get full on fewer calories not with high fat foods but actually with 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 vegetables but um, you know that said you know there's a whole spectrum in terms of how satiating different types of foods are you know it's you know i'm a big advocate of not losing the forest for the trees with nutrition i i really as i don't even like to talk about nutrients you know sometimes you have to uh but i really uh, i'm kind of in, in the michael Pollan camp where it's just when you go from food to nutrients you're really taking your eye off the ball and uh, i think people just they they get just too much into the weeds and the details and trying to sort of outthink everyone else in terms of, you know, what is the one true way for everyone to eat. And you know, I prefer to keep my focus on uh, just eat high quality food, you mm. know, and, and, you know, have some, have some diversity, you know, to me, it, 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 uh, it smacks of navel gazing a little bit when, you know, when you just, when you kind of invent a diet, you know, and you know really is is that you know in 2013 2013- you know, we just to invent a better diet. I don't, I don't think so.
0: Yeah. I would be really interested to hear about what kind of foods you eat on a daily basis, because sometimes, you know, people give recommendations, but it's a lot more interesting to hear what you actually, what the person is actually eating.
1: Yeah. So um, I really do. I, I, I practice what I preach. Um, and if you have you know, seen books, books like racing weight, um, you know, I kind of lay, lay out guidelines in, in there, um, and 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 elsewhere, and it's really a focus on uh, I, I think of, of certain like categories of foods, and I kind of just rank them from from high to low quality, or just you know the sort of there's a group of high quality foods and a group of low quality foods. High quality foods are you know fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, uh, whole grains, be, uh, high quality meats and fish. Low quality foods would be uh, refined grains, um, sweets. Uh, sort of fatty meats and fried foods. Um, so, you know, I try to really minimize the place of low quality foods in my diet and, and fill it up with, with high quality foods. But, you know, I, I really eat like a normal person. I'm not big on, you know, like superfoods or whatever. And I, I just think that y- you can eat like a normal red blooded American, but just really pay attention to diet quality and, um, because there's something to be said for, you know, cultural food ways, like, like, like orange juice with breakfast, right? That's just something that, it you was know, it's kind of, it's part of our culture. And, you know, a lot of people want to get fancy and come up with like some kind of like, you know, pomegranate, acai, superfood drink. It's like, is that really, is there more in there? I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I, think I should think, orange, I think orange, oranges are, are fruit and they're a perfectly healthy food. So I have, I have orange juice with my, my breakfast. And, you know, I, I think, So that's sort of the approach I take is, um, you know, breakfast for me would be usually most mornings, uh, uh, cold cereal with fresh fruit and whole milk and orange juice and, and black coffee that that's like, and um, there's nothing unusual about that at all. Right. It's Mm -hmm. just, but it's, I have, I'm I'm very picky with my cereal. You know, it's gotta be all whole grains. It has to have 10, fewer than 10 grams of sugar in it, you know? So again, like normal food, kind of a familiar way for people in our culture to eat, but just, you know, very high quality standards. And I'm certainly not having donuts.
0: You know, Although the, the so. whole milk sounds a little bit unusual for, it might, for some people. Is that, are, are you concerned yeah. about the fat at all?
1: No, no, I'm not. You know, I just, you know, I, I really, base, I try to base everything I do on, uh you know, you know, solid research. Mm -hmm. And of course you can find one study to support anything, but I I try to go, you know, for sort of like sort of the mainstream consensus. not, not the fruits and flakes out there who are just (laughs) going off the reservation, but, you know, uh, You know, people like Marion Nessel, who wrote uh, What to Eat, or uh, Walter Willett at at Harvard. You know, these people are kind of just like mainstream and just have not one study to back up what they recommend, but the most research. And so that's, you know, I I try to have that sort of solid science foundation um, and also real world stuff. You know it's interesting. In 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 my racing book, I have a collection of one day food journals from eighteen different professional endurance athletes: the runners, cyclists, triathletes. You know, I've got Shalane Flanagan in there and um, Ryan Hall. All these people, I, I just contacted them, and said, would you, "Would you be willing to tell me everything you ate yesterday?" And you know, they all did. And very very few of these people are on any kind of weird diet or what i call a diet with a name Uh, and i'm afraid that includes paleo they just (laughs) they just eat again it's just they just eat like american people who have a real emphasis on qualities so getting back to the whole whole milk thing you know in the first edition of racing way you know i kind of just went with what was out there and i did recommend that people emphasize um at dairy products but you know then some more research came to light which suggested that it really doesn't matter at all. And that in certain instances, whole milk uh, and whole milk dairy products uh, might actually be healthier. For example, like for young children and their brain right. and stuff. So, you know, I, I really try not to get too concerned about contradicting myself. You know, if, if I learn something new, I will just take back what I used to recommend for. And I also don't, I try not to get too wedded uh, to principles, you know, where, you know in in face of contravening facts you know if if i if the facts change change you know and and i have to to modify one of my principles then i'll do that and so that happened with with whole milk for me i for a long time i used it i recommended it but now i've seen that it it either doesn't matter or it, it's actually better to do the whole milk so that's why that's why i do
0: mm-hmm. how, how about uh what? How about lunch and dinner? What? Uh, just basic? Uh, what you call red-blooded American meals? Or
1: yeah. Well, so unfortunately, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a big cook myself, but I, I married one. Um, and you know, I, I work from home, so it works out so that often my lunch is often just dinner leftovers. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um. So I used to. I used to eat a lot of sandwiches, and, and before I gave them up, you know, they would be high-quality sandwiches where it's you know whole-grain bread you know, some kind of lean protein source in them and then kind of piled high with with veggies, uh, that type of thing. Um, but now I'm more likely to have, um, you know, if my wife made a, you know, a, I don't know, like a chili, you know, the night before I'm left over, I'll, I'll, I'll grab that out of the fridge because in one way it reduces variety because I'm having for lunch the same thing I had for you know dinner the night before, but it also increases variety because we sell the same thing for dinner. You know more than two nights in a row, depending on how much we make. And whereas you know when I did the sandwich thing, it tended to be close to the same thing every day. Um, And you know, there. I don't know. It's. I think it's just easier to get you know vegetables into your into a a, a more dinner type of setup than a typical red blooded American sandwich type of type of lunch. So that works out pretty well for me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, every every now and then I'll uh, you know I I I will eat like can I get canned soups? So like the the Amy's brand of soups, (laughs) I'll just you know crank open a, a can of that um maybe have a salad with it um and then yeah so dinner it's it's pretty much whatever my makes um she you know she likes meat, um so you know we will seldom have anything that's sort of a, a meat-free dinner although we probably do more fish than uh than meat you know we get a lot of our fish frozen from costco or, or whatever You know, it's perfectly perfectly good stuff you know as long as it's not like the you know, the fried battered cod or, or whatever, which we would, we, we would avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't give any real name to, to my diet other than that, just culturally American type of thing. But again, you won't find much fried food, much refined grains, much sweets uh, and much, much like fatty or low quality meat meats in my diet. I just I avoid those, what I consider you know, low quality food categories.
0: Okay. You know we're coming up on time here, and I, I'm I'm interested in y- your your writing is is very uh, infectious and entertaining, and it keeps you interested. And how did you do you develop this curiosity, or are there certain people who inspire you to keep learning about running?
1: Yeah, you know it's it's funny, you know the the thing that hooked me on running more than anything else, even you know when I was 11 years old was the kind of the intellectual and spiritual side of it um where you you can you can learn and explore you know it just begins with figuring out how to get better or seeing yourself get better that that whole game of of inputs and outputs you know if I do this you know what will the effect be that I just found that endlessly fascinating that i could I could make decisions about what to do with with my running and they would i could see the effect you know. A, a day a week a month or or a year later and that's never changed you know that that it, i just never stop learning and discovering you know by actually running but also you know by talking to other people about it by by reading about it um which is great because you know i'm i'm 41 now so I've, I'm sure I've set my last PR. So the whole, you know, improvement was a big motivator for me for a long time. But you can you can you can only keep improving for so long. Um, but the, uh, the the discovery never stops. You know, you as long as you keep yourself out there, you're going to keep learning and discovering, which is great. You know, because that can last a lifetime. And I I I don't plan to quit um, anytime soon. And in terms of you know, the folks who inspire me. Um, you know, it, it it can come from anywhere. You know, I you know I, I do sort of go looking for it. You know, if I have a chance to talk to you know, I met Joe V Hill for the first time uh, recently at a conference. Um, you know, legendary running coach, and you know, it was just great to talk to him um, and and learn from him a bit. Uh, and that's expected. You know, when I, when I meet someone like him, I expect to learn something. But it can also come from you know, completely unexpected uh, sources as well. Even things that just would appear to have nothing to, to do with running. So I just like to, you know, I, I'm living the life I want to live. And it seems to, it all goes into the soup somehow or another just by, you know, just living the life running. I I keep learning stuff. And of course I have the advantage where my job is to communicate, <clears throat> excuse me, to runners and other athletes. They always there's always something, you know, a part of my brain is sort of looking for things that I can share with with other people, which really helps me, you know, remain alive to exploring and learning because I have I've got a job to do.
0: Matt, it's been great having you on the show, and you've given our listeners a lot to think about. Your books are really entertaining and and really really good reads, and I hope that people learned a lot. and Thanks so much for taking the time to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you for your interest, and uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's great.
0: Awesome. Take care. All right, right, you too. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more information, go to paleorunner.org. You can send your feedback to Aaron at paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.